We are still considering the first two verses in the twelfth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now we've reached the stage at which we are considering this important phrase in the second verse. Be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Having told us the negative, that we are not to be conformed to this world, the apostle is urging us positively to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, we are still dealing, in other words, with the general theme of the Christian teaching, the teaching of the New Testament with regard to conduct and behavior as to how we should live in this world. And last Friday night, we spent our time chiefly in stating this great teaching here in the form of principles if you like, in, in a more theological form. And the great thing we tried to emphasize was this, that the Christian, unlike everybody else, never starts with a particular problem. At least he never should. The Christian must always start with himself, as he is a new man in Christ Jesus. Now, all moral systems know nothing about that because they can't. They're not new men and they don't believe in the new birth. So they start and end with the problems. The Christian doesn't. His whole approach is different. He starts with himself, the new men in Christ Jesus. Then he comes to the particular problem in the light of that. If we don't do that, we are under some kind of law and we are to that extent denying the gospel. Now, everything, in other words, in the Christian life must be considered in the light of our new position. I'm so concerned about this because to me it's one of the most glorious aspects of the Christian faith. And it is certainly the key to successful Christian living. The Christian's attitude to conduct and behavior, if you like, is never negative. It's never negative. And another thing is this, it is never small, and it is never fearful. We do a very great disservice to our Lord and Master, and to his way of life, if we give the impression that it's something small, and that if it's something negative. Of course, that's often been done. The man of the world will tell you today that that's why he's not a Christian. At least there was a time when he did that. He said, you bet you know, you people are so small, and your life is such a little one. It's such a narrow. And I'm afraid we've often given that impression. And we've been fearful. Now, the Christian approach is never fearful either. It's only as we give that impression that uh, we misrepresent the gospel and we are a hindrance to people coming into the Christian life. Now, the Christian approach, you see, is always positive. And it's always big. And it's always glorious. If we don't give the impression that it's a glorious thing to be a Christian and to live the Christian life, 
We've never understood this statement. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What a possibility. What a glorious way of looking at everything. And there is no fear here. Because, you see, we are reminded at once of the great and glorious resources which are ours. Now, I'm trying to sum up what I was saying last Friday. I'm trying to reinforce it. I hope we've got a glimpse of this, of this whole approach to behavior and conduct, such as you have it here and elsewhere in the, in the, in the New Testament. Let me re repeat the quotation I gave last Friday night. The object of uh, the New Testament is not to produce a reformation of uh, behavior, but a transformation of character. I summed it up by saying all the appeals of the New Testament when it teaches holiness and sanctification, all its appeals are simply this. Be what you are. Be what you are. So you've got to start by realizing what you are. The New Testament doesn't come and say, no, you mustn't do this, you must do that. It says, be what you are. Realize what you are and proceed to show that you are what you are. Now that's it. You see, it's, it's unique. It's unique. There's nothing else in the world tonight that teaches this. And that is why we've always got to realize that no man can live this Christian life unless he is regenerate. You've got to become a Christian before you can live the Christian life. Indeed, to expect anybody to live the Christian life in any part or form who is not a Christian is to be teaching heresy. That is what is called the Pelagian heresy. Pelagius thought that you simply have to teach people the principles of Christian living and that they could do it. That is sheer Pelagianism. And it is false. It is heresy, which has been condemned and always should be condemned by the Christian church. So I trust we are clear about this. This idea that all you've got to do is to go to the world and go to the statesman and tell them now this is what Christianity teaches. Put it into practice. It's a denial of the whole teaching. So that when your popes and others address the United Nations, they don't appeal to them to put into practice Christian principles. They should tell them that they must be born again because they'll never do it until they are and you're wasting your breath apart from anything else in trying to get them to do so. Thus, you see, these great principles are being denied before our very eyes and it is mainly the cause of the terrible, confused state of the world this evening. Men, you see, have long since shed the Christian doctrines, but foolishly believe that they can still hold on to the Christian ethic. It cannot be done. It is a sure impossibility. That's what the Apostle is saying. You need this transformation, which, as you remember, last Friday night we showed was comparable, in a sense, to the transfiguration of our Lord on the Mount of Transfiguration. Very well. So what he's saying is this. We must not be found conforming to the fashion of this world. Incidentally, I'm afraid I misquoted a verse, not misquoted a verse, but gave the wrong number to a verse last Friday night. A friend has pointed it out to me. I was saying that this word, be not conformed, is the same word as is used by the Apostle Peter in his first chapter, second epistle, and I believe I said verse 7. It is actually the beginning of verse 8. 
where we are told that he was found in fashion as a man. I certainly remember emphasizing and repeating the phrase, but if I did inadvertently say verse 7 instead of verse 8, well, please put that right. It's the beginning of verse 8. And being found in fashion as a man. That's the word. The same word as here is translated conform. Very well, we mustn't uh, be like uh, or look like the fashion of this world, but rather we must be transformed, transfigured, changed, and show the new nature that is in us, in our life and practice and conduct. Now, how do we do this? Well, the whole point is, according to the Apostle here, that this demands positive effort on our part. It is by the renewing of our mind, and especially by the spirit of our mind. Now, the Holy Spirit is in us as Christians, and he's always working in us. And what the Apostle is telling us to do here is to listen to him, to be guided by him, and to put into practice what he tells us. You see, it's again this two-sided teaching. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for, because it is God that worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. That's what he's really saying here. You have been born again, therefore renew your mind. What's it mean in practice? Now then, here's our subject this evening. Obviously, the first thing it means is that we must acquaint ourselves with the truth. Why were these epistles ever written? It was to help us to renew our minds. That's exactly their purpose. That's why Paul had to write this. That's why all the other epistles have been written. We are not merely left with our experience and the activity of the Holy Spirit within us. He is the Spirit of truth, and he has caused these men to write these letters in order that we may be helped and taught how to renew our minds. Now, you can't do that unless you're acquainted with this word. So it means acquaintance with the truth as it is presented to us with all its argumentation in the New Testament. And the second thing it involves, of course, is that we must understand the truth that we read. You've got to read it, you've got to spend time in reading it, but you've got to struggle with it until you understand it. That's why we meet like this from Friday to Friday, isn't it? We are trying together to understand this teaching as the Spirit leads and guides us and as we use our minds and brains and understanding. That's exactly what we're doing. And then, of course, it means this, that having known what it is and having grasped it and understood it, we then constantly apply it. Now, this demands an effort on our part, because, unfortunately, as the result of the fall and sin, we all become creatures of habit. And we've been so accustomed to thinking in a certain way that we tend to go on doing that even after we are converted and after we've been born again. You don't automatically begin to think in the new way. You do, of course, in a fundamental sense, and yet it involves a lot of training. You'll find your mind slipping back into the old grooves. You've got to pull it out, as it were, and direct it in the other way. That's what he means by, by the renewing of your mind. Now, there it is in general. But let me show you now what this means in practice and in particular. Here I am, a regenerate man, very well. 
Now then, I've got to think in an entirely new way. I've got to approach all the problems of my life in this new way. How do I do so? Well, I start by saying this. I ask myself, what, after all, is the object of salvation? I, as Christians, we are converted people. We are regenerate. We have believed the truth. We rejoice in the doctrine of salvation. We rejoice to come to the Lord's table and to partake of the bread and the wine. We declare the Lord's death till he come. We believe that that's what makes us Christians. That's what we are as Christians. But now, you see, you don't stop at that. The danger is to stop at that, to say, right, I'm saved now, and then you just go on living a kind of life without really relating your life to that. But you see, the Christian doesn't do that. He mustn't do that. He's got to renew his mind. He says, now, I must start asking questions. Why has all that happened? Why did the Lord Jesus Christ ever come into this world? Why did he die upon the cross and be buried and rise again? What's the object of it all? And you see, as you study these epistles, you discover there's only one answer to that. The apostle has been setting it before us here in a most wonderful manner in chapter 5 of this great epistle. You know the real ultimate objective in the incarnation and all that followed was the production of a new humanity, a new race of people. We were all in Adam. We are now to be in Christ. He's the head of a new race of people. And he came in order to form this new humanity, this new race of people. He's the second man. He's the last Adam. Now, you see, the object of salvation is not merely that we may be forgiven and not go to hell. Now, the danger is to stop at that, isn't it? And just say, ah, I've been saved. I've been saved from this, that, and the other. But you see, we've got to learn to look at this positively. He's the firstborn amongst many brethren. He's bringing many sons unto glory. Now that's, you see, the kind of way in which the Christian becomes renewed in his mind and makes himself think. Or you can take that the great statement of it made by the Apostle in the second chapter of the Epistle to Titus, where he puts it so, so clearly. The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men. What for? Well, the answer is teaching us. Teaching us. You see, it teaches us. Salvation teaches. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. What for? Well, that he might redeem us from all iniquity, but he has the positive, and purify unto himself a separate, peculiar people for his own possession, zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Now, that's it, you see. Well, now, this is what it means. That we stop and ask ourselves the question, what is the ultimate object of salvation? And then... You begin to see that it's this great and glorious positive thing. And your whole attitude towards individual problems is already a new one and a changed one. But let's go on. If the whole object 
And the ultimate object of our Lord's coming and all that he did is the formation of this new humanity. Well then, this of necessity involves essentially the fact that we should be transferred from one condition to another. Or if you like, be translated from one condition to another. And this is something that the New Testament writers glory in. Now, there is no more wonderful statement of that than that of this same apostle in the first chapter of his epistle to the Colossians. And he puts it like this. Let me read to you from verse, from verse 12. Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. What a conception. Now, that's what he means by renewing the mind. That you take a statement like that and you take trouble to understand it, and then you proceed to work it out. And you say, very well, I am ultimately to be a partaker of the inheritance of the saints in light. But I can never be that without something happening to me. And not merely that I am forgiven, that doesn't do it. I have got to be translated out of the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his dear son. My friends, that's precisely what's happened to us. That is what it means to be a Christian. And it is because we don't have things like this in the forefront of our minds and indeed controlling the whole of our outlook that we fail and fall and we are grappling with little problems individually as if we were still unconverted people. This is how we approach the whole matter. We have been taken out of it and we have been transferred into this. It isn't. This teaching isn't confined by any means to the Apostle Paul. Peter, in his way, puts the thing quite as plainly and as clearly. Listen to Peter in the first epistle, second chapter, verses 9 and 10. You, he says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that he should show forth his praises, his excellencies, his virtues, who hath called you out of darkness, brought you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which have not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Here it is, exactly the same thing. Now this is how the Christian faces his living in this world. Doesn't say problem number one, problem number two, and then say what can I do, and struggle against this in some negative way and fearful manner. No, no. He goes back and just reminds himself of all this. Well, very well, I say. We have to remind ourselves of where we are and what has happened to us. We have to remind ourselves that we have been delivered from this present evil world. That's quoting Galatians 1.14. Hath delivered us from this present evil world. Now, to be renewed in, the, in your mind means this that you will not allow yourself to forget that. You go on reminding yourself of it. Now, I put it like that to you because you noticed in the reading at the beginning that that is precisely how Peter puts it in writing this second epistle of his. 
He's an old man. He's facing his death. And what he tells these people is, he says, you know, all your troubles are due to the fact that you've forgotten what you know. Does he say that? Well, listen. He says here in verse 9, He that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his own sin, old sin. He's forgotten. He knew, but he's forgotten it. Now, the renewing of your mind means that you think so positively about these things that you'll never be able to forget them again. But he says he's going to see to that. So he goes on. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. He's already been telling them, beside this giving all diligence, add to your faith, furnish out your faith with virtue, brotherly kindness, and so on. You've got to be active and positive, and in doing so, you're renewing your mind. Be give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you shall never fail, never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom. Then he goes on, wherefore he says, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them. Now I say that that's preaching. You get tired of hearing me saying the same things, my friends. Well, I'm just doing what the Apostle Peter did. And I'm sure he was right, and I'm sure I'm right. Our greatest trouble, all of us, is that we forget. I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them and be established in the present truth. But he's going to say it again. Wait a minute. Yeah, I think it meet as long as I am in this tabernacle to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. I think this is the call that comes to ministers today more than ever before. Christian people are forgetting things they've known. And that's why we are in the present muddle and confusion. And the business of preaching is to go on reminding us. And then you see, he even says it once more. Knowing, he says that shortly, I must put off this my tabernacle, even as the Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. Moreover, I will endeavor that you may be able after my decease to have these things always in remembrance. In other words, he is helping them to renew their minds. He says, you were told these, you believed them when you became Christians, but you're in trouble now, you're unhappy, and you're failing. Why? Because you've forgotten. But you mustn't allow yourselves to forget. You must take yourselves in hand. I'm stirring you up. I'm going to make you do it. I'm going to remind you of the things you know but which you've forgotten. That's renewing the mind. Becoming what you are and realizing what you are. You see, he keeps on saying this. He's reminded them, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these things, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. You've got out of that, well, don't conform to it then. Because you're out of it, don't look as if you were still in it. And don't behave as if you were still in it. Realize that you're out of it. You've escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Or take again another wonderful statement of all this by the, this same Apostle Paul at the end of the second chapter of the epistle to the Colossians. Listen to him. Having worked out his great argument about the cross until verse 15, he begins at verse 16, Let no man therefore judge you in meat and drink, or in respect of unholy day, or of the new moon, or of Sabbath days. Silly people, 
They were going back under the law, you see. Though they'd been emancipated and translated, they were going back to those things, which are, he says, a shadow of things to come. But the body is of Christ. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshipping of angels, intruding those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up in his fleshly mind, and not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bends having nourishment ministered and knit together increases with the increase of God. Wherefore, here it is, if you be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why as though living in the world are you subject to ordinances? He says, what's the matter with you? You're muddled. Renew your minds. Which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. And indeed, he's had to say the same thing, you see, to the Corinthians. Here's a perfect statement of it again at the beginning of the third chapter of the first epistle to the Corinthians. And I, brethren could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able, for you are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are you not carnal and walk as men? They were born again, but he says, you are living as if you are not. You are thinking as if you are not. You are desiring as if you are not. You are contradicting yourself. Very well. Now then, so the first thing we have to realize is that we have been translated from. And then positively, we have to remind ourselves constantly of what we've been translated to. Out of the kingdom of darkness, into the kingdom of God's dear Son. But look at it in this tremendous statement in the epistle to the Philippians chapter 3 verses 20 and 21. Here's the positive. Our conversation, our citizenship is in heaven. From whence also we look for the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change this our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able to subdue even all things unto himself. That's it. The apostle, you see, is contrasting that with certain false teachers, many walk of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind, think about, you see, earthly things. But our conversation, our citizenship, the realm to which we belong, is not there, it's in him. We belong to the kingdom of God. We've been translated into the kingdom of his dear son. And, of course, the author of the epistle to the Hebrews is saying exactly the same thing in that great 11th chapter, where he puts them up one after another, these great heroes of the faith, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and all these men. What's the secret of these men? Well, you see, their secret was this. These men... While in this world we're looking for a city which hath foundations whose builder and maker is God. That was their whole secret. They realized that they were just passing through this, that they belonged to that. That was the, the way in which they thought. That's the secret of the lives they lived. 
In other words, they were minding these things. They were renewed in their minds, in their thinking. Very well. Now then, we start, you see, with those basic propositions and remind ourselves of them constantly. And the result of doing that is that we see everything in a different light. We are truly renewed now in the whole of our thinking. Now, one of the best expositions of this, of how it works out in detail and in practice, is in the fifth chapter of Paul's second epistle to the Corinthians. If you want to expound scripture, use scripture to do so. I'm giving you the commentaries on this one phrase in Romans 12, 2 tonight. Now, here's an extended exposition of this in the, in the fifth chapter of the second epistle of the Corinthians. It's all summed up in one great statement in verse 17. Wherefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, a new creation. All things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. What does that mean? Well, let Paul tell you himself what he means. He puts it like this. Here's the new way of thinking. He says, because I'm a new creature, a new creation, in a sense there is nothing now as it was before. I see everything differently. Here's one respect, verse 16. Wherefore henceforth know we no man after the flesh, Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him so no more. Now this is a tremendous statement. Paul says, you know, my mind has been renewed. And I see nothing now like I used to see it. He doesn't see himself as he used to see himself. He saw himself once as a, a very fine man, very godly, good men, pleasing God, Pharisee better than most other people. Doesn't see himself like that now. He now says it is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. That's a new way of thinking, isn't it? He's been renewed in his mind. He not only sees himself in a different way, he sees others in a different way. No man after the flesh any longer. When Paul, Saul of Tarsus used to look at other men, the one thing he asked was, is he a Jew or isn't he? That was the way he thought. That was the controlling principle. Jews, non-Jews. People of God, dogs. No good at all in them. Everything right about these. He doesn't think like that any longer. He's been renewed. And you see, my friends, you and I are to work this out. We are no longer to be governed by likes and dislikes and prejudices and things like that. We were entirely governed by things like that. We mustn't now. We are renewed in our minds because of what has happened to us. And as the apostle now delights in the fact that he is the apostle to the Gentiles, as he has been boasting in chapter 11 of this great epistle, so you and I must see everybody else in a new way and it will solve many of the problems of our daily life and living. But the trouble is, isn't it, that often as Christians, though we are born again, we react as we used to react to different people and to what they do and think and say. We mustn't do that. We must now look at them. We must see them not so much as difficult people. If they are difficult people, we must see them as slaves of Satan. 
we must be sorry for. Our Lord looked out upon the messes and he saw them as sheep without a shepherd and his heart was filled with compassion. And we must do that. When we've got this new way of thinking, we'll do that. But we must make a positive effort. We don't just instinctively react. We say, wait a minute now. How do I look at all of this? And you remember that they're just the slaves of the devil. They still belong to the kingdom of darkness. They're not a people. No men, I never know, no men henceforth after the flesh. And you see, it not only changes our view of ourselves and other people, it changes our entire view of life in this world. And there's nothing more important than this. We are in a unique relationship to this world. Our citizenship being there, we're only strangers and pilgrims here. See, that's how Peter puts it in 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. And you and I have got to make ourselves think like this. We are in this world, we are no longer of it. We are journeymen, we are sojourners, strangers and pilgrims. It's all there put perfectly in that mighty statement in the 11th chapter of the epistle to the Hebrews. He gives us the philosophy, if you like, of why these men lived as they did. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. It's inevitable. And, of course, this is the constant appeal of the New Testament. Listen to Paul again in Ephesians 4. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of your mind, of their mind. You can't do that. You haven't so learned Christ. Don't go on living as if you were unchanged. You are changed. He gets it, brings it out again in the fifth chapter of that same epistle. Be ye not partakers with them therefore. For you were sometimes, you were at one time, once upon a time, you were darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Well, walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Proving what is that acceptable, what is acceptable unto the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them, for it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. You see, the world isn't ashamed to speak of them in public any longer, is it? But you and I should be ashamed of that, and we mustn't do that. We must have nothing to do with it. But all things are reproved and made manifest by the light. Wherefore he says, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. See then that he walks circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Wherefore be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. You see, the New Testament is full of this very argumentation which I've summed up, you remember, so often to you in working through this epistle like this. You were, you are. You were, but you're no longer, thank God, but you are. 
That's exactly what he's saying here. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You've got to realize that you do belong to this chosen generation, this royal priesthood, this holy nation, this people who are to be a peculiar possession for the Lord, who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light that we may show forth that he's done so and thus minister to his glory and to his praise. You see, to forget all this will simply lead to conformity to the world. And if we do conform to the world, it just means that we've forgotten all this. It is a matter for the mind, my dear friends. This is the problem. The problem is one of thinking correctly. Renewing of the mind. You know, says Peter, I'm amazed at you. You've forgotten. You're foolish. You're blind. You can't see afar off. You've forgotten what's happened to you. So to conform to the world is not only to forget all these glorious things which we claim to believe, but it is also at the same time to contradict them. And we must never be guilty of that. Well, there it is. But then let me give you another great argument that is inevitable when you begin to think in this way. Here I am. I've been called out of the darkness and its kingdom. I've been translated into God's kingdom. And here I've been looking at myself now, functioning in this kingdom. But wait a minute. Let's look ahead for a moment. Let's consider what's awaiting us. Let's consider why God has done this to us. What's it for? Why has he given us the spirit? Oh, it is in order to prepare us for that which is our destiny. Well, the Apostle has been putting this before us many, many times, hasn't he? You remember that uh, wonderful statement of it, which engaged us at one time in the 8th chapter, where he puts it like this to us, where he says, Moreover, whom he did predestinate them, he also called, and whom he called them, he also justified, and whom he justified them, he also glorified. Whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate what for? to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn amongst many brethren. Now, this is the way we must think. We must say to ourselves day by day, I no longer belong to the darkness. I no longer belong to the known people. I am of the people of God. I am in his kingdom. But what for? Well, it is that I may be prepared for this glory which is coming. And I must walk in the light of this. In other words, I don't live just from day to day and hand to mouth, allowing the world to influence me and I reacting. No, no, I've got this total view. I realize that I'm a pilgrim on the way to eternity. One of God's children going in the direction of home. And I must keep my eye on that. Wasn't that the secret of Moses? According to the author of the epistle to the Hebrews, how did Moses do what he did? Well, he did it as seeing him who is invisible. Why did he account suffering affliction with the people of God greater riches than the pleasures, than, than the prospects in Egypt and the pleasures of sin for a moment? The answer is this. He had his eye on the recompense of the reward. You see, that's how the, that's how the men of God lives. He doesn't really face this particular problem, shall I do it or shan't I, and try and bring in psychological methods to help me, not, not at all. That's the world's approach. 
He says, who am I? What am I doing? Where am I going? Ah, and he sees it. He has his eye on the recompense of the reward. And if you've got your eye on that, you'll soon deal with these problems. But that's how we're to deal with them, by the renewing of your mind. You see, our Lord himself, according to that author, did that. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. His eye was there, the joy that was set before him. And, of course, the apostle has put all this before us in most eloquent language. I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. That's it. You see, he says, even we ourselves which have the first fruits of the Spirit... Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to it, the redemption of our body. That's the thing. We keep our eye on that. It's the same argument exactly that he uses in 1 Corinthians 15. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Awake unto righteousness and sin not. Why? Well, because you're going to rise and you're going to be like him. It's the whole argument of that chapter. You see, ethics and the doctrine of the resurrection are inextricably mixed up together, and they belong together. And again, I would remind you of that great statement at the end of Philippians 3. We are looking for the Savior, who shall come from heaven, and who, when he comes, will change this, the body of my humiliation, and fashion it like unto his glorious body. That's my destiny. That's where I'm going. If I'm a Christian, that's the truth about me. And the moment I keep these things in my mind and they govern my thinking, it changes my attitude to every particular problem. But that's the way you do it, you see. You do it with the mind and you get these things clear. And these are guiding principles. These are controlling principles. And all these other matters fall into position. And so I end by putting it like this. As long as you see these things, and as long as you are governed by this kind of thinking, well then, of course, you will realize in a very acute manner that you've got no time to waste, you've got no time to spare. The time is short. Eternity is coming. You say you want to get there. You say that you rejoice that Christ came into the world and even died on the cross and was buried in a grave and rose again in order to bring you there. You say all that very well. Well, it means then that you're going to see him as he is and stand before him. Well, if you believe that, says John in his first epistle, you haven't got much time to waste and to spare. You better start preparing yourself for it. He puts it like this at the end of the second chapter of his first epistle. And now, little children, verse 28, abide in him. Why? Well, that in order that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. What a terrible thing it will be if when we see him as he is, the predominating feeling will be one of shame. That though we said we believed in him, and we're grateful to him for coming. We lived according to this world. We'll see then what we've missed. How we'd misunderstood it all. 
how unworthy we've been. We'll be ashamed before him at his coming. No, no, let it not be that. Let us rather prepare for it and go on then to what he says in the third chapter. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, the world knoweth us not, because it knew not him. If the world criticizes you, thank them for doing so. They're telling you, in other words, that you belong to him. They didn't know him, and they don't know his people. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Right. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. It's inevitable logic. So you don't just start with the question of purification. You see yourself meeting him and looking into his eyes. And you say, I must get on with this. I must purify myself even as he is pure. That's the motive. That's the argument. Or again, as the apostle puts it in 2 Corinthians 5, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. That's it. Oh, let me close. As we are, after all, studying this great epistle to the Romans, he's put it, perhaps it is most eloquent again as regards this particular matter, at the end of chapter 13. Listen, here it is. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor, therefore... Love is the fulfilling of the law, and that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. Why? For now is our salvation nearer than when we believe. The days are passing, and every day that passes means that we are a day nearer to his coming, the ultimate completion of the salvation. Knowing that now it is high time to wake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night, and it is night at this present time, isn't it? The night, the night of sin and evil, the night of the darkness of this world. Thank God, we know this. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. And it is as you see that you apply this logic. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day. Not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying. But putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. Well, it means something like that, you see. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You think in this way. You struggle, strive, do everything you can to make yourself do that. And you never allow yourself to slip back into the old way of thinking. You are renewed in your mind in the spirit of your mind, in the controlling principle of all 
your thinking and your entire outlook. That is the way in which the Christian faces the problem of conduct and behavior of living in a world such as this tonight. O oh Lord our God, we again thank Thee, or oh, how can we thank Thee, for such glorious truth, for lifting us into the realm of light and of the eternities. Oh, forgive us for our slowness, for our dullness, for our lethargy. Lord, may we be given grace to heed the great exhortations of thy word that we have just read together. Help us all to feel tonight that it is high time for us to awake out of sleep. For the night is far spent and the day is at hand. Oh, may it come. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, and grant that none of us who know these things shall be ashamed at thy glorious appearing. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit, abide and continue with us night, throughout the remainder of this short, uncertain, earthly life until, until we shall see him and see him and be like him.